I'm Dr. Eric Larson. I'm the host of the Paradox Podcast. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Other and Ron Paul Podcast starts now. Welcome to the Honor and Ron Paul Podcast. This is episode 23, and it's going to be with Eric Larson of the Paradox Podcast. Uh, he is an anesthesiologist physician, and I'm a pain management physician, and I brought him on just so we could chat about uh, science in general, uh, how information is received and processed through the scientific community, uh, particularly in regards to this COVID, as we're getting just a a fire hose of information. It's very difficult to parse out. And we may not even be able to know what the heck happened or is happening uh, for another decade um, as all of this stuff is is uh, kind of, all these numbers are kind of coming out. And it's a very difficult time, both as libertarians with a lot of government overreach, but also as physicians dealing with this new novel virus. Um, so I will welcome Eric Larson to the Honor and Ron Paul podcast. This is the second time you're on. Give me a little bit of input as far as uh, where you're at right now, as far as your own uh, personal risk profile, what you're doing, and uh, particularly as a continuing to be an active physician. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great to be a repeat guest. At some point, I'm going for the hat trick. Uh, so uh, there are different, you know, parts of our lives as physicians. Of course, we have our clinical responsibilities, and so as an anesthesiologist, I have to take care of people, obviously, in the OR, and that's a much different situation than when I'm out and about in the public. And for me, when it comes to in the OR, we're we're working in the airway, and so for us, it's it's very challenging to um, to safely intubate someone place a breathing tube in safely, and then you're obviously at risk if someone does have COVID uh, to have aerosolized particles that are released. And lots of the really bad results of people who get really sick and die, for as far as physicians, are generally in airway procedures, usually ENT procedures where they're like, you know, in someone's sinuses. Uh, but those are the ones where, for whatever reason, it seems like even everybody in the OR, even when they're properly uh, gowned up and everything, die. And so... I think there's a real risk in in exposure to COVID. So what we're doing is we're just protecting yourself with N95 masks or uh, papers. Uh, just in, routinely, we are now preoperatively testing patients so that we have uh, a screening. Um, you know, as you know, the screening for that is okay. It's like, I think, 70% sensitive. Uh, so you're going to miss a bunch, but it at least gives you a little extra level of reassurance. I still maintain my similar... Uh, personal protective equipment when I'm intubating. Uh, I think that's prudent. It doesn't cost you much. And um, and then when we take the breathing tube out as well. So the sort of like those parts are the same. I don't do the excessive gowning at this point. Um, I, if I had someone who is positive, then we go to great lengths to try and protect ourselves from being exposed. As far as my personal life, that's totally different, right? When I uh, the way I look at it, and I don't know how you see it, but I feel like masks are actually a, uh, a uh, they're sort of like a, a personal, um, uh, what would the term be, I guess, uh, it's, it's like a friendly gesture to other people that says, you know, don't worry, I, will, I won't get you sick. And so I wear the mask not to protect, protect myself, I do it to protect other people, essentially. I think it's pretty clear that unless you're wearing a... Like social signaling. Yeah, and it's, and I think, you know, it's, it's I think... I, as part of a member of society, I think it's a responsible thing to do. I mean, unless you can guarantee that you don't have it or you're you know, immune to it or something. Because, right. uh, you know, you could be an asymptomatic carrier. We believe there's asymptomatic spread. I think that's pretty clear there's some. How much there is, it's, you know, as many things as this, we don't, we're not quite sure. Uh, but there are plenty of people who the only way they could have gotten is through asymptomatic spread through someone in their family or something like that. But uh, anyway, uh, so the, the mask is just a, you know, means of basically, you know, protecting other people and not worrying about myself as much. I, I kind of assume, I don't know how you feel. I assume that I will at some point get this. And I, my assumption is that especially if you're a healthcare worker, you're probably going to get COVID. I think it's unlikely we're going to have a vaccine and, you know, those or novel treatments. I mean, I hope we do, but I don't see much of that happening, you know, before we're all exposed at some point. And so I think those are sort of the, sort of the, the two different ways I look at the COVID. 
uh, that doesn't even count, take into account sort of the broader sort of socioeconomic sort of, you know, things which we can talk about in a little bit too. Yeah, the interesting thing with the, the COVID-19 relative to some other viruses is that the asymptomatic um, carriers, when they do uh, culture out uh, the virus from their nasal pharyngeal swabs and things like that, they seem to have a similar viral load as to those people that are actively showing symptoms, which is kind of surprising. And that may be because the right. oropharyngeal area has so many ACE2 receptors, and that's why a lot of people are having you know, problems tasting and smelling. And, and so it just seems that there's a lot of um, upper respiratory uh, viral load, uh, even in people that aren't symptomatic, which is, I think, where a lot of the strong concerns were early on that this was going to have a, um, a very dramatic spike and be uh, extremely overwhelming to the system. And so it is understandable that there was caution. And I personally am uh, wearing a mask as I go out, wearing a mask as I'm seeing patients. Fortunately, I mean, I'm in the same room as people, and so that is a risk. But fortunately, I'm not staring right down their mouth hole as they're as you're putting a, a <laughs> that's yeah, what we call it actually yeah. anesthesia <laughs> you know i i did an anesthesia rotation i know you call it a mouth hole <laughs> and, <laughs> and shoving those tubes down there they might cough on you oh man there was this one <laughs> uh i'm just going to tell the story of, of residency just talking about personal protective equipment and things like that uh, i was on call at the county hospital and the county hospital was always a brutal call, a record for our team, which was uh, one chief, two residents, and four med students, was 33 admissions uh, in 24 hours. Ugh, it was horrible. Anyway, so um, there was this young guy who was in the ICU, and he had been in there. Everybody knew about him because he had been in there for three weeks and they had zero diagnosis. They, they knew he had some type of an encephalopathy, maybe a, a um, you know meningitis of some sort, completely gorked out, completely healthy before, right? So he was in all this lockdown. People were like, we don't know what it is, but we don't mm-hmm. want anybody to get it. And he was delirious, starts pulling out all sorts of tubes, pulls out his NG tube. <laughs> and nurse can't get it back down. What do they do? Well, they call me, who's almost never put in an NG tube. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I'm I'm the intern, so that's 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 what you got to do. So I get all gowned up, get all my stuff on, <laughs> head on in there. Yeah, this right. is three in the morning ish. Didn't have glasses. Dropping this NG tube down, get it right back to the back of this guy's throat. He coughs, <laughs> huge hunk of sputum, whacks me right in the eyeball, and I'm like. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to die. <laughs> that, you know, talk about a direct connection. Sputum to eyeball, optic nerve, brain, I'm toast. You know, I, just, I freak out, wash my eyeballs out as much as I can, wash them. Oh, man, it was horrifying. And so, you know, I tell the attending the next morning, is like, give me every single update on what this guy has. I have to know everything. And they think it might have been some fungal thing that they just couldn't um, culture because it was anaerobic or yeah, who knows? The guy eventually recovered, and I never got sick. But oh man, you know PPE, it's important. You know, it's funny you, that that story actually I think relates a little bit to um, our our conversation today about COVID, it, and um, it, it's sort of like these lines: you have people who are who are otherwise healthy, who suddenly get so sick that they die from something or, you know, I don't know if this person uh, died from this disease, but it sounds like it didn't do well. Um, and uh, when that happens, you know, it's obviously tragedy. There's no explanation for it. It just happens. And you have that with coronavirus too, with this COVID-19. You have it where people, for whatever reason, uh, young, die. Most people are totally fine. Asymptomatic can get over it okay. Uh, and... And so it, but it points to the fact that things happen to people we can't explain. You or I can't explain. We don't know what happened with this, why this person had it, just bad luck. Like, you know, people get flesh eating bacteria who are young, 
lose leg. I mean, crazy things happen to people that we just that we just you know, again, unexplainable. Um, and and we want to try and keep people safe, but there's things that just happen. And I think in some ways we have the conversation has turned in our country from you know flying curve blah blah to now just keeping you safe to the point of um, that safety and preventing any sort of bad thing happening to you is the primary goal of this of you know treating COVID or at least you know combating it and it causes all kinds of weird sort of strategies and and things that are that people you know right. are enacting as far as ways to to fight it. Yeah, and I think this would be a good segue to just talk about just general risk and risk tolerance. Uh, and I think it may be just kind of an element of the comfort culture that we have because of the prosperity that the world has been enjoying and increasing uh, over the past several decades, where it's no longer the assumption that life is going to suck and then you're going to die and so you need to seek out uh, a a purpose in life or a meaning outside of just uh, the visceral enjoyment and I was uh, talking to my mom and because she was you know very worried as we were kids about us getting meningitis and you know I asked her about it later when I was in med school why were you always worried about us getting meningitis like oh yeah I had a, a classmate die from that had another classmate die of rheumatic fever. Had another classmate die of measles. And you know, if you think about your your grade school, if someone died in my grade school, it would be horrific. And she just had all sorts of people, you know, polio and this and da 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 da, da and people just dropping. And um, and so a lot of that is kind of missed. This randomness that is actually out there, and. It's, it's very hard to kind of uh, cope and deal with new dangers, even if those new dangers are very small. And particularly for people that's looking like under 60 um, and even people under 70 that have no hypertension and diabetes, this is a very, you know, very low risk of mortality. Um, particularly, you know, if you're looking at you know, car accident deaths or strokes or heart attacks, you know, notwithstanding that COVID may be increasing the risks of strokes and heart attacks through uh, coagulopathy issues. But uh, I think there's, sure, there's a, a lot of sense of, you know, this is a new scary thing. And so it has to be controlled and not recognizing that so little of our life we actually have control over. And the things that we do, we need to kind of cherish those few things we have control over and make sure that we're doing those things right and just accept that things will fall into place or things won't fall into place. And that is the randomness of life. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at just look at the United States 100 years ago, 1920, it's not unusual to have a child not make it to adulthood. In fact, a couple, as you were just talking with your story, that was just your your mother, right? I mean, you can imagine back three generations, Right. right? It's a lot different. And not that people expected kids to, but it was far more commonplace. And so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't surprising. And so the world wasn't seen as, it was seen as more dangerous. It just, there was just inherent risk in just life itself. And that just is not, that is not something we're used to. And so our culture reacts the way you'd expect it to, where, you know, suddenly it's something you thought you were comfortable. And like you said, you're comfortable in your position of what's, what your expectations are. And it's taken away from you. I mean, I look at, uh, my wife and I lost a son, our middle son, in a car accident when he was 14, a year and a half ago. Uh, and it was horrible. I mean, it was, you know, the worst thing ever. And I think back to, you know, if people back in 1900, they had a number of ch- children die. And not that it didn't bother them, they wouldn't grieve, but it, it couldn't have been the same for them because they didn't have the same expectations. And I think that's part of the problem, you know, right. that we're dealing with. I mean, that's extremely tragic with your, your son dying, but the frequency of that happening, I mean, isn't accidents the number one cause of 14 year olds dying? I think it's gotta, it has to easily be the number one. Trauma has to be the number one. And that or suicide or something like that. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe when you hit adolescence, it might be, it, it might be suicide. I'm not sure, but it's, I mean, for young children, for sure it's trauma. And then number two would be cancer, I suppose. But I mean, you know, 
yeah. illness or something like that is uncommon. But still, the the likelihood, of, you know, life expectancy. Part of the reason life expectancy has gone up so much is not because I mean it is in some part because people live longer, obviously, but it's more a reflection really of the fact that childhood death is so much less than it used to be. You know, infant mortality is so much lower. Yeah, that dramatically skews the numbers. I mean, um, just uh, I was reading an article about uh, some of the ancient philosophers and whatnot, and some people reached their 70s and 80s in ancient Greece. And Oh, sure. But, you know, you think of everyone dying at the age of 35. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people died at the age of 35. And, you know, if you have one person that dies at the age of one, you know, that cancels out somebody who dies at the age of 70 as far as averages um, by mathematical definition. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it really does make the statistics about likelihood of death very difficult. And you see a lot of these charts as far as um, people's uh, life expectancies when they're dying of COVID and this uh, calculation of life years lost and it's my contention that the amount of life years lost is going to be dramatically higher from the shutdown itself and the economic ramifications of that, particularly in the third world, than life years lost uh, from COVID, even if nothing had been done. Um, so what do you think about that statement? I think there's probably some validity to that. I think it's, um, you know, I mean, your point is that young people don't die from this. I mean... I say that, and of course, everyone brings out the person who did, the you know, the, the one child who did. But I mean, overwhelmingly, the people who, who, who die from this are older, the older, elderly, especially really the elderly, like people over eighty. Um, it's if you look at the the mortality numbers from like even northern Italy. I mean, it was I think over half were seventy five or older or something. It was I mean, it's really skewed towards the the old, um, and. And so by that means, you know, you're not really, you you might have, someone might have died a year earlier than they would have had they, you know, otherwise it's always hard to know for sure, of course, but you know, that's the actuarial th determinations you can make later. Um, and so it, the question really is, you know, what if you have massive unemployment? I mean, I'm looking, I sit in Michigan, I'm in West Michigan right now, and it, it seems like our state is one of the worst as usual <laughs> when it comes to, when the recessions come. And we're like maybe a third of our workforce is unemployed right now. Um, and that's like wow. uh, one and a half million people, Michiganders, something like that. I think it's crazy amounts. Um, I don't know. I, can't, I know there are people who've figured out, you know, how many people die because of unemployment and, and economic, you know, downturns from social isolation and from depression and suicide. And, but I mean, overall, just your health, obviously is a lot worse when you don't have any money to take care of yourself and eat, you know, well, I mean, you're, when your living conditions are worse, obviously you're going to do worse. But I think your other point, which is one thing that no one in the United States ever talks about is really the ramifications this has on the rest of the globe. Right. I think our food supply, we feed the world in many ways, um, you know, outside of, you know, bananas or something like that. I mean, we get from other parts of the world, but we, we supply most of the, a lot of the world with lots of corn and soybeans and all kinds of agricultural products. Uh, and our supply chain breaking down is going to inconvenience lots of Americans, but it will be starvation and death for, for others in the world. And that's, you know, what, because since we have products that go to the world market, if there's our products are making it, the price of food goes up and people who don't have as much, they have to spend suddenly instead of 30% of income, they have to spend 70% of income on food. And now they don't. Now that child dies because they can't feed everyone in their family or something like that. I mean, it's really, it's really terrible. Not that I expect any politician in the United States, like a governor, to say, "Oh well, we're not going to close down because I'm worried about the kids in Congo or something like that." But that is that is the interconnectedness of the world, right? We, we live in that people who are really poor, and that's no one in this country, but the people who are truly poor uh, and destitute in the other other parts of the world, they're the ones who really suffer from this sort of thing, and. Um, but I do think even Americans will suffer significantly for this. And I don't think we're just going to bounce back as the president says. I think he's yeah. crazy to say that, that our economy is like a light switch. Yeah, it's absurd because I mean, with the, the interconnectedness as you're talking about, and now you're seeing a lot of retailers are already 
going under jc penny's nordstrom's j crew uh and you know that's going to have additional consequences on those suppliers and and then everybody that all these financial institutions that had those bellwethers uh within their stock portfolio all of that's going to be hit and then all this is going to be hit and it's just going to keep continuing and the stock market went up today on some news that the dozen people in the vaccine trial nobody died in the vaccine trial it looks like they're forming antibodies yay everybody freaks out and the stock market goes up by two or three percent that has very little impact on the actual economy and everybody is just playing on um you know these uh, how the stock market is vectoring and all these high frequency trading uh, systems where they're just trying to work these numbers and ignore the under, uh, underlying fundamentals and those fundamentals have been declining you know for for a long time and this recovery has been only in the stock market since 2007-2008 i mean I shouldn't say only. I mean, it does seem that the real unemployment has improved, but it it didn't. This is this was the slowest recovery ever since a significant downturn, and it was all papered over with an unprecedented amount of Fed dollars. And now, that unprecedented amount of Fed dollars that papered over the 2007-2008 collapse was dwarfed with this uh, most recent uh, Fed actions. And it is going to be very problematic. And, and now we're seeing a lot of evidence coming out that the lockdowns versus other places that didn't lock down, the infection rates, the death rates are all within a standard deviation of each other. And so this idea that you, know, you had to have a lockdown, otherwise you're going to have an exponential tenfold growth it just really doesn't pan out at all. And so now it seems like you've destroyed the economy and there's very little evidence that it did much. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, it's, I, well, I mean, there's so much that's puzzling about this virus, right? I mean, I think the fact that you have a long, I mean, there's just the biological things that are strange, like you're asymptomatic and have a high viral load for a long period of time before you show symptoms. And a large percentage of people, we think, never have any symptoms, at least the ones that they recognize. I mean, maybe they have a fever. They just never think of checking or something like that. Um, and so, which, you know, obviously encourage, which enhances the spread of this, this disease. I mean, so that's weird. Um, I think the fact that you have, you have, uh, it's unclear how it spreads and, you know, whether it's, you know, if, uh, if, if you're infectious the whole time, um, if, can you form antibodies? And then the whole, the whole part, the economic impact of it is really, really weird. I, um, I, I still am not, it's not clear to me when I look at the, the lockdown and, you know, most of the, the spikes happened. Well, if, if we say there's an incubation period of two weeks for the virus, uh, you would suspect that if you, that the, that when you, you have to, not until you lock down, right. will you see the results in two weeks later, right? I mean, that's what you'd anticipate. So if you do nothing, uh, the virus is going to grow exponentially, which it would until it starts running out of hosts, which is going to take a long time since no, it's novel disease and no one's had it. No one has immunity to it. You lock everything down, and then two weeks later, you expect to see it start to decline. We kind of started seeing that before it, before the lockdown started, which either suggests that people were just doing it, right. were doing it on their own before they were even di before it's dictated from the government, which I suspect is a large portion of it. Mm -hmm. um, you saw most private actors like professional sports leagues, the NCA, you saw all these, you know, close businesses closed down or at least, you know, put measures in place because they didn't know what was going on. No one really knew. Um, but you also had really sort of asymmetric spread. And, uh, you know, you, you say, well, New York, not surprisingly, New York got hit badly, right? Because it's, you know, super densely populated, um, probably the you know, most densely populated city we have in this country. Uh, you have people riding subways, to, you know, crammed in together, walking, you know, tons of people on the streets and stuff. And so you'd expect, oh, yeah, the spread would be, be terrible. Uh, then you have really bad spread in Detroit, 
which I don't know. I mean, I guess it has an international airport, but how many city, metropolitan cities have metro, international airports? I mean, not that many people use Detroit as a hub. <laughs> yeah, Detroit got it bad, right? Right. Yeah, well, maybe because people are coming from Iran because they have a little bit higher uh, Middle Eastern heritage population. So, And Iran was kind of bad right before then. So maybe you could explain that. Uh, but then you have like Chicago. I mean, O'Hare's busiest airport in the world. And yet Chicago doesn't seem to have, didn't have as bad as spread as other places. Kansas City, Seattle, Houston, Dallas. I mean, you can go through tons of cities. I mean, there are, there are events that happen, like you say, well, Mardi Gras and New Orleans got kind of bad, but, you know, Miami's not been, I mean, all these cities have had it, but it's not like been overrun and it's not like you would, you would still anticipate that, that it wouldn't, um, that it wouldn't, that it would spread kind of simultaneously in many ways across the country. Like it wouldn't have to start in New York and then, you know, go to other cities that it would probably be kind of everywhere pretty much at the same time as people arrive from China and Europe. Uh, Likewise, you know, it came from into Seattle and probably the first case that were actually in Washington and and the Northwest has been, I mean, relatively okay. I mean, got busier and they've definitely seen Corona COVID, but it hasn't been like crazy overrunning things. And I was talking to someone on my show um, about who, about something totally unrelated to coronavirus and we were off the air and she was saying that, you know, not all the schools in Seattle had closed down. Like her county, they didn't even close down yet, even though all the other counties around had. But, but it was sort of like just kind of random when people were closing things down. It didn't, but it never really spread that badly. Even though you had, you had probably right. the spot where people were least prepared because they didn't even know it was coming, right? And then, and they sort of like found it by happenstance. And so it was very strange, right? Way, right? I mean, I don't understand why. So many cities have been spared really bad results. Yeah, they kind of locked down, but you would expect that it right. that they would have had it before the lockdown started, right? I, it it just doesn't make any sense to me um, why why this has happened. It, it either it's not as bad as we think, or and by that I I don't mean the the infection is bad right. because I think clearly if you get it, it's much worse than the flu. I mean, I don't think there's any de- de- question there that it's I certainly agree from symptoms and from hospitalizations and how bad how sick people get it's clearly worse than the flu in the sense that it has a higher mortality rate it's it's profiles different right i mean i think you know the flu uh, influenza the sort of standard influenza that probably kills younger people at a higher rate than this one does but you know certainly children uh, you don't really see any kids affected by this hardly at all um so that's a little bit weird too but but anyway i i just don't know what to make of it because you know you look at strategies for for the for fighting this and you know the initial strategy was to flatten the curve which you know if you want to look at you could talk about area under the curve or whatever but essentially what the whole point was to not overwhelm our health hospital systems to not have like a northern italy where you have you know people die in the hallways and they can't get ventilators they can't get icu coverage right. and so you want to try and this where they lock things down socially isolate wear masks you know eventually <laughs> when with that sort of edict came out and but it's you know like like I was saying earlier it is it has moved to something more than that. But even with that, you you'd have kind of expected that if you're going for herd immunity, I don't know. I mean, it's going to take a long time. But it, I I feel like you you should be having more cases than this. I we were prepared. I'll just give you an example. You know, Detroit got hit badly in Michigan. Uh, they didn't. They had hospitals at still capacity and they had room. They weren't sure they're going to. They plenty of they had ventilators. They had ICU, but they've been busy and they still have quite a few uh, cases there. Um, but then you have us and we're two hours away in West Michigan. Michigan's actually pretty, you know, not that big a state, two and a half hour drive. Uh, so you'd suspect that we're days away, right? I mean, we're the second biggest metropolitan area in the state of Michigan. Um, a lot of commerce, lots of people. I mean, actually tons of international travel, not surprisingly or surprisingly to China. <laughs> There's lots of manufacturing in China and people coming back and forth from Grand Rapids. Uh, so we'd expect that we would be inundated and then you know when hit in detroit we're like okay we're at best a week out probably four days and so we're ready we were like trying to you know gather all our stuff we shut down the ors got everything ready and then just sort of didn't come we thought oh well maybe it's like you know 10 days maybe two weeks and it just never came i mean we i I don't it didn't make any sense to me maybe no one from detroit traveled over to this side of the state after it sort of started hitting i but it, but you you would expect there'd been plenty of people spreading it here, right. long before the governor, our governor, shut everything down because it was, 
it just is very puzzling to me why it didn't it hasn't been worse than it than it could have been because you could say well that's because maybe everyone's asymptomatic or pop, patient population is different but i don't quite think that's the case i don't think you know when we look at the antibody tests and stuff i don't think they're we haven't done any surveys and this, but i've talked to lots of people who've had it i mean admittedly that's anecdotal i know people who've had it but i know a lot of people who thought they had it and they did antibody tests and they didn't so and people who are pretty convinced they didn't like you know in healthcare providers mm-hmm. So uh, I, I just I just find it all very strange. Is like I just don't understand why it hasn't gotten worse. Is it just waiting? Or is it just not going to be as bad as we thought? Is it is it are not really not as high as we thought it was? You know, which is the number that tells you how infective it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I, I don't I don't see any reason why one part of the state would be worse than the other. I mean, some of the things that it it correlates with. Uh, is the vitamin D levels, and that could explain some. But then, of course, you'd expect Seattle to be trashed because you know nobody in the Pacific Northwest has enough vitamin D. <laughs> but uh, there also the possibility that uh, other beta coronaviruses in a cold form have come through, and people have a cross immunity to the COVID um, because of. Um, you know, they just happen to have a cold that looks somewhat similar to it. And that could be affecting both the infection rate. It could also be affecting some of these studies of the antibodies. If there's some crossover with, uh, you know, uh, some of these cold viruses that people get and doesn't bother them. Um, so, yeah, but you would also kind of expect to see, I don't know, some more consistency as far as patches where I, mean, I guess in, I don't know if Michigan had this, but in the Pacific Northwest, we certainly had a very bad, what we call the flu season. You know, November through January, there was a lot of people who had a very long-lasting coughs and cruds. Um, I was sick for quite a while. I still have a little bit of a residual cough. I haven't gotten antibody testing, but that was like November. So that was like if somebody from Wuhan had like taken it out of the lab and given it to me, it would be... <laughs> where that would have had to come from. Um, So was that some other kind of Corona-y kind of thing that just happened to cruise through the West Coast, making the West Coast much more resilient? And, you know, the people in in New York didn't have that as much. Or is there some uh, genetic issues uh, or some genetic susceptibility with, the uh you know o type being protective o type blood being protective but that would be you know, once again much more of a evenly distributed thing i mean we're not you know crossing the country in a covered wagon i mean people are going to new york from right. la all right. the time so it, it just it, it's very very weird and then adding to this the uh difficulty in actually calculating covid deaths because of the testing being delayed and then having the incentive structure. I don't know if you've had to do any billing or anything like that in your practice, but you know, definitely I can guarantee this is not a conspiracy theory that hospitals are hungry for cash. If anybody is even close to COVID, they're marking that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Because uh, it's a, it's a significant bonus. And so how much is that kind of, you know, you have that bumping up the numbers, but at the same time, other people may be uh, dying of COVID at home, which seems less likely that somebody would just die. I mean, it seems like there's a pretty consistent progression that people, you know, become harder and harder to breathe and they have plenty of time to get to the hospital. But if COVID is causing these thromboembolic events that, uh, stroke somebody out and it is truly COVID, maybe they're undercounting COVID deaths. Uh, it's So uh, the numbers are very difficult. And there's an old saying where uh, it uh, says, computer models are always wrong and some of them are helpful. <laughs> and I think that is very good to recognize how how difficult it is to calculate uh, what's going to happen in the future, particularly when when human actions 
voluntary human actions come into play uh, because a lot of people will be wearing masks quite early, socially separating quite early, washing their hands quite early, just on a, a voluntary basis, choosing not to go to some places. And other people, if you tell them, you see this in the libertarian community, if you tell them, all right, you got to wear a mask, screw you, man, I'm not wearing a mask. I was wearing a mask last week when the government told me not to wear a mask, but now I am not wearing a mask. <laughs> and yeah. So you see people, you know, it, like intentionally, uh, you know, going out, like saying, you know, try me world. I am just going to ignore all of this advice because it comes from somebody who is forcing me to do something. And just like in the quarantines, early quarantines in Wuhan, I talked about this in episode 18 when it first came out, uh, talking about the risks of underreporting if you're sick. I am sneaking out of this quarantine saying I'm not sick, and then you're actually carrying this disease, potentially leading to more and more infections. The tighter and tighter you try to grab down on this disease, more and more people are going to hide the fact that they're sick just so they don't get uh, locked down. And so it's, it's always very difficult when people uh, have free will, and people hopefully will always have free will, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to you know really kind of predict what happens and then you add on to this how there may be genetic differences and susceptibility some populations will get it some people won't vitamin d seems to be protective uh those levels you know just and also viruses in general are very dependent on you know how bad you get the flu uh, is you know how much virus you're actually exposed to how much sleep you're getting how much uh, how much do you exercise? How much vitamin C and zinc and all these things that just have a natural kind of immune modulating effect? If you get a small amount of virus that comes in your system, your body can fight it off and you're fine. And but if you get a huge load, like you looking down the mouth holes of some people and coughing right into your face, <laughs> that viral load is going to pretty quickly overwhelm your system. I'm just going to call it mouth hole from yeah. now on. <laughs> I love that. Trachea, da, pharynx, da. It's a mouth hole until <laughs> I come up with a better term. <laughs> I, I think you made a lot of good points, and I, you know, there are a lot of things, a lot of things talked about in the, the libertarian world, and I, you know, this is a libertarian podcast, so we can talk about that. Uh, first of all, I think there's no shortage of contrarians within the libertarian world. Like I, I feel like that's one of the requirements to be a libertarian is that you have to be a contrarian. So if someone tells you to do something, you're like. Well, do I have to or, you know, and, and so um, anyway, so it, it's not surprising to me that that people and and I do find it interesting that you see libertarians get upset that like, you know, suddenly Costco is forcing you to wear a mask and Costco makes the decision determination. Our pay, our, our most of our customers won't come to our store unless they feel safe. So we're gonna make sure all our employees have right. masks. We're gonna put plexiglass shields and we make sure all our patrons have masks. If they don't, they just can't shop here. And, you know, I totally respect that decision by Costco. I think that's, you know, not unreasonable thing to ask of their patrons until you know more about this disease. It's a mild inconvenience to force someone to wear a mask. And, you know, if you don't want to, you can go shop at Sam's Club. I don't know, wear up somewhere else, you know. But there's these libertarians who insist on, like, it's some sort of, you know, virtuous thing to not wear a mask. Like, all right, whatever. I mean, I don't quite get it. Um, I get that you don't like it. I mean, that's fine. But I don't know. It just, this is a, if you're, you know, it's a private business, they can do what they want and, you know, you can choose not to shop there. So, but, uh, the other thing you talked about is the, the counting of deaths and, and I, it, it is interesting because as someone who does not actually ever declare people dead, thank goodness, thank goodness, it's not my, it's not what I do. Some people do this all the time. You know, I see physicians, they have to, not only do you declare someone, you have to declare death, uh, but you have to state a time and then obviously a reason. And it is not as easy to determine why someone dies as you might think. And so people think, well, obviously, you know, someone had, they got the flu and they died. Well, they died of the flu. Well, okay. But you could also say they died of pneumonia. You could say they died of, you know, kidney failure or maybe encephalopathy. In the case that you were talking about that young gentleman who had sickness. Uh, what about your grandmother who's 90 years old, dies in her sleep? Well, you can't put dies in her sleep in the, on the death certificate, right? I mean, you can't just say old age. You right. have to have something like, you know, heart stops, right? I mean, that's 
sure. I mean, it could have been a million things that actually caused it. Maybe she just stopped breathing for some reason or, uh, or had a brain hemorrhage, but you're never actually going to look. Uh, maybe it was coronavirus, right? I mean, uh, so it, it's really not easy to, tr- to determine these things. And there is obviously, as you mentioned, a financial incentive for hospitals to encourage the coding of someone having coronavirus. Well, you've got a cough. We don't have any tests, but we're just going to say you have it because we just play it safe, right? We put you in isolation or whatever. Right. Um, so it is it is unlikely that the number that coronavirus, people who have it, will ever know how many people died of coronavirus. In fact, I guarantee you we'll never know. We'll never, we'll never even have much clue as to how many people really died of it. Um, because you could say, well, if people aren't going to the hospital because they're afraid of getting the coronavirus and they're dying of the heart attack at home, even though they didn't have it, do they die of coronavirus? I guess you could argue maybe, I mean, in some ways, because that prevents them from going, you know, to the hospital. Someone who commits suicide because social isolation was a coronavirus. Eh, not really, but sort of. Someone who dies of cancer. Oh, and also we found out they had coronavirus too, which was, you know, or they had died of a bacterial pneumonia, but they also had coronavirus. Was it the coronavirus that killed them or was it the bacterial pneumonia, right? It's hard to know. And so uh, it's just a guess. <laughs> and I don't, and as it's not a conspiracy in some ways. I mean, that there is, like we talked about, there is a financial incentive, and so there's a reason to upcode and, and probably have somewhat inflated amounts. But there's just no way you're ever going to know the right answer. But I think it's, you know, it's sort of like how many people died from the Spanish flu. Well, nobody knows. I mean, a lot of people died, millions. But, right. you know, unless you went back and actually did autopsies and actually checked every person but even then you're again you don't know if they died of that or if they just happen to have it they got it like the day before they're going to die anyway right i mean there's it's not obvious it's right. it's very difficult it's sort of like is is light a particle or is it a wave the closer you look it looks more like a, one than the other uh the more you prove it right <laughs> and so it, it's not an exact science and so i think people who try and use it uh, as a point to make to make a point either way, one way or the other i think it's a fool's errand and it's not one that you can <laughs> that's useful um, so I, I think those are two th- important things to point out because they're kind of thrown out there as like ways to, to, to persuade you that of one point to the other. And I think it's probably, they're not helpful. Um, so. Yeah, that, uh, in the unknown and the unknowing is, is always very difficult, particularly when we have this idea that, you know, science is settled and medicine is on top of this thing and no medicine's not on top of this thing we're throwing everything including the kitchen sink at it and nothing seems to be really sticking all that well and that's very distressing to people and then you add this constant media coverage and then you add all of these you know charts and you know uh my um uh, finance finance.yahoo.com which i do some stock tracking on you know it, it'll say the covid deaths right there on the top you know world usa and and it's like <laughs> yeah right you're just inundated with all these numbers like oh did it go up today did it go down today what, what does that mean and it's you know i think it's safe to say that within a factor of two or three the numbers are probably accurate sure like yeah. it's uh, probably more than 40,000 and less than 160,000 um, in the U.S. have yeah. died. And, you know, that's that's bad. Um, but that's not a number that is so dramatic and insane as to stop all life and activities. You know, you can... Uh, evaluate your risks and evaluate what I what I do is not evaluate my risks but I evaluate my risk of giving it to other people that's what I'm terrified of right yeah because you know first rule of doctrine is first do no harm right I don't want to catch this and give it to somebody I would feel absolutely horrible if that were the case and so uh, looking at it in that way you know I'm not trying to show everybody that I hate the government they can ask me if I hate the government, and I'll tell them. Uh, you know, I don't need to show them by not wearing a mask. I don't need to show them by, you know, uh, going here and there and, and whatnot. I mean, we we make our own little decisions about how we uh, how we run our lives and evaluate the risks. I think there's plenty of information out there now for each person to make a rational decision 
in regards to what their risks are and what their risks are to giving it to other people. Um, and you see all these silly rules from governments coming down, like, oh, you can be on a boat but not more than three people, and you can be on the river but not a lake, and you can't park in a parking lot for a trailhead. You can, Like in Oregon, right. you can go on the trails, but you can't park at the trailhead. <laughs> like the parking lot's closed. And so everybody's parking on the streets and all jammed up in all these little tiny places, and they're all whack, walking past each other to get onto this trail at the one spot right next to the road. And so that's a lot closer than if you just opened up the the parking lot and yeah. said, all right, well, now you've got a bunch of room. You can just go everywhere. But, you know, all these unintended consequences. Well, this is why, um, you know, when it comes to the lockdown and strategies, I, I think it's imp- – I don't think there's no role for government. I'm not uh, an, not an anarchist. I know you're more of an ANCAP. And, <clears throat> and I think, you know, we get to close to that point, we can have a discussion. And maybe I'll, I can be convinced. But um, – but as it, but as I do think, it's if you're going to have a government, I think one of the roles it should be in this situation, a plan, pandemic, is it should provide information that uh, is helpful for local communities to make decisions of what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, uh, there's you know a shortage of ventilators in the state of Michigan. You should know this, right? So you should respond appropriately. We should we can compile data. We can know how much stuff is available in various places. And so if there's an overrun in one place. We can transfer resources to another place or, you know, suggest, hey, you can contact this county and they might have the things you need. Right. Uh, but but that you should have the local communities make these decisions. And and in that sense, you really want the individuals and uh, to make the decisions as much as possible, not because governments are totally incompetent, because, yes, governments are incompetent, but so are people. I mean, people are very incompetent, too, all the time. I mean, right. it turns out government's actually composed of people. Right. So it's <laughs> to... Uh, the libertarians are often blamed. It's like, oh well, you just don't think government's ever any good. Well, it's not that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a basic understanding that it's composed of people, and you want to allow it's, uh, you want to allow the ability for people to correct mistakes. Uh, and so, in this case, if you say, hey, you can get this disease if you are within six feet of people and you don't have a mask on, for instance. So, if you have a business, this is what you want to do to protect your workers and to protect your your patrons. Well, unless you're a crazy business, you want to protect your patrons and protect your workers. I mean, I mean, I know there aren't many places that aren't, but you're going to know how best to do that within your business. Maybe you're a car dealership. Well, it doesn't matter how many thousands of square feet you have. You can you could have, you know, maybe you have all those people in that room because it's totally empty. But maybe you have a store where you have really crowded tight aisles and there's hardly any room. Well, you don't want to let as many people in, or you want to make sure you have directional arrows and the you know aisles or things like that. There are ways that you can run your business and in in ways that uh, there's no way any government could possibly you know issue orders or rules that are going to make any sense to you. Uh, you know, the, and the crazy things we had in our state, in Michigan, which has been uh, you know maybe now it's being eclipsed by what's going on in California, but. Uh, you know, where we, you could get on a boat, but not one that had a motor or you could you could get you mentioned the Illinois. You could get on a boat, but not with more than two people, even if they were living in the same house. Uh, it, or you, New Jersey, the governor wanted people to social distance at home. I mean, these things like are totally unreasonable and are not things that are. But, you know, had you just provide guidance saying, hey, socially distance. If you're sick, stay home, wash your hands, um, wear a mask when you can. If you're outdoors, if you're if you're close to people, if you're away from people, well, you don't need to wear a mask if you're out, you know bicycling or something or out in a canoe on the lake or something like that. I mean, they're, they're, you know, common sense things you can do and not everyone's going to do the right thing. But even if you have a million edicts, people are not going to do the right thing. And I think, right. I think in some respects, the, the, the thing about libertarianism that I find appealing is not that, um, not because I think, you know, governments are incompetent, which I do think in general, they often are not able to do as much as people think they can do. But I think it's a reflection of recognizing that, People are going to make decisions. They're going to make the wrong decisions. But how how big a mistake do you want that to be? If you have one person who controls everything at the top and they make a mistake, everybody pays the price for it. Whereas if you have a million people making decisions, yeah, some people are going to make a mistake, but it's not going to affect everybody. Now, obviously, in a pandemic, a couple people, super spreaders, they go do dumb things. Well, they can get a lot of people infected. But it's still going to be minimized if everyone else is doing probably the right thing. And right. Um, And... I can tell you just from since we had pretty restriction, pretty tight restrictions here in Michigan, that it has the exact opposite effect as you were kind of alluding to earlier. 
that as soon as you, as soon as people are decide they're done with it, they're just done with it. And so like it was incredibly busy in Michigan the last weekend, this last weekend and last week, people are everywhere. I mean, they've went from lockdown. They're like, forget it. And they're just out doing stuff because you can only keep people locked up so long from a psychological standpoint. Um, you know, I, and from a personal standpoint, I, you know, I have parents and I want to see them and, and it's not, it's, it doesn't make any sense to say you can't see your parents for two years because you might get them infected or something like that. I mean, you can make the decision. And like you said, you're concerned that you could get them sick, but you know, I mom who's her memory's getting a lot worse. And if I wait two years, I don't know if she'll know who I am next to, you know I mean? It's right. And that's not, how does that help anybody? I just, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and my final point, which is related, but un, kind of unrelated is about the vaccines that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the 12 people got this vaccine, the notion that we're going to have a vaccine and we're going to mass produce this and administer to people within inside of a couple of years. I don't know what you, I, about you, but I think it's crazy Yeah. because, because you have, and people say, well, what if you have an effective vaccine? Well, okay, let's say you have an effective vaccine. What's the safety profile? You know, how many people are getting allergic reactions to it? How confident do you feel that this vaccine is going to be perfectly safe? Are right. any vaccines perfectly safe? No. I mean, so if you have a disease that's going to kill 0.3% of people who get it, and that's all comers. So if you take, actually, if you look at people who are young, let's say you want to vaccinate everybody who's under the age of 25. Well, their death rate's like 0.03%. So you have to have a safety profile that is virtually 100%. Right. And the only way you can know that is with extensive long-term longitudinal studies. You can't do, you can't figure that out in six months or a year. Because if you're the government and you, let's say you're a pediatrician, especially, and you're an advocate for vaccines to prevent childhood diseases, which have, you know, increased life expectancy, like we were talking about earlier, without a doubt. Uh, if you have started administering vaccines, especially ones that, I mean, I get the impression that they're going to, there be some sort of mandate for these, right? If it doesn't go well, which vaccines have not gone well in the past, they've not worked and they've actually had lots of bad side effects. Right. You're going to you're going to spoil people getting any vaccines, and now you're going to have outbreaks of things that you weren't having problems with before, like you know measles, mumps, rubella, those sorts of things. the The risk for all these things are are really significant for something that really on the on the average is not going to kill you, right? And yeah. so you really have to. That's why I just don't think a vaccine is going to be the thing that's going to fix it. I think there might be a novel therapy. Um, we may just have to suppress this thing for a while, and like you know. Maybe just everybody wears a mask everywhere for a couple of years, and then you have local information like, "Hey, we're getting a little bit of outbreak." Everyone just kind of limits gathering sizes or things like that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to think that's probably what's going to happen, but we'll, we'll have to see. I guess really, if there's going to be another spike somewhere, yeah. Because I think that's going to be the real the real answer. Because if we don't see another spike anywhere. Then, we, then the questions could be like, well, maybe this was no big deal. I don't know. Because, again, we had very few cities that were massively affected like New York. But, I mean, clearly New York was, you know, affected. I, and even I New know. York, I mean, uh, the numbers weren't weren't insane. Uh, it wasn't people aren't dying in the halls. It, I mean, it's um, there's definitely no, some. It was manageable. There's definitely some uh, overcrowding, but there's plenty of large metropolitan areas that you can transfer those patients to that aren't overwhelmed. Um, and going back to the vaccine, yeah, I mean, I see a, a, quite a few patients who have Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is when your body starts attacking your own myelin sheath and, and uh, they become quadriplegic. And you can have that with any type of, uh, this is going to make everybody paranoid, but, you know, it, once again, <laughs> the, the fallacy of, of big numbers, you know, 300 million people in the world, in the country. Um, you you have uh, you know you become quadriplegic and then slowly your myelin heals and hopefully you recover but sometimes you don't and that can happen with viral infections that can happen with immunizations it can happen with with anything that your body kind of reacts to and then of course you can have you know, all, all sorts of autoimmune things where your body overreacts to something and uh, if that the likelihood of that is surprisingly high when you look at um, uh, complications from vaccines, these known complications from vaccines, particularly when you are talking about young populations relative to uh, death from COVID. 
And so if you're talking, you know, somebody uh, 0.05% risk with having a vaccine complication versus 0.03%, I mean, that's almost double right. uh, of, uh, you know, the, the risk of COVID from just getting a vaccine. And But if you're not vaccinating these young people running around all over the place, you're not getting herd immunity. And so then you're not really protecting the older people. And so, and, you know, coronaviruses, is RNA viruses tend to mutate pretty quick. That's why we don't have something for the cold and we don't have a vaccine for the uh, HIV. And so, uh, you know, you vaccinate everybody and then it comes back through next year. And we may already have a different strain over there in um, New York that we do on the West Coast. That could be another right. thing that could mm-hmm. explain differences from coast to coast and country to country. Maybe everybody's dealing with different uh, strains. So, uh, no, I don't think vaccine is the, the idea that we'd shut down the economy until a viable vaccine is out is just absolutely ridiculous. And that's really going to mess up all sorts of people and a huge amount of uh, trust in public officials and just the medical establishment. I mean, as it is, people are afraid to go to the doctor for all sorts of things. Um, so, yeah. All I, I, I can say is that it's it's going to be worse this year than last year. <laughs> well, and I don't know who's advising these governors because our governor made the same statement that she she said that there would be no there'd be no attending sporting events until there's a, a viable vaccine. I, I I feel like people think it's happening in December. Like you know, by this time next year, we're going to have a vaccine. People will be vaccinated, which I blame. I rest a lot of blame on the president who keeps saying that there's, you know, vaccine. We're just, you know, months away from, and they have these trials are coming out. I, I just, I just don't see the, how that's possible going to possibly going to happen. And I think just to get the numbers and idea, you know, when you say, let's say this is a 0.1% fatality rate. So that's one in a thousand people are going to die from coronavirus. So what do you think your, what is your risk tolerance for taking a vaccine? Are you're not going to accept one out of a thousand people taking a vaccine to die? You probably wouldn't even say it except one out of 10,000 or one out of 100,000. So to get to get the prove right. that you've got those numbers, uh, you've got to test it on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it, it, it's just it just doesn't seem to, it doesn't strike me as anything feasible right. anytime soon. And so but I, I I think at some point these governors are going to have to relent because, I mean, they're right now they're just relying on the fact that the Fed's just going to print a bunch of money uh, and just, you know, or the buy up debt so that you can that the fed the u.s government can just send trillions of dollars to first state and local tax relief but i don't i i don't know i mean i just don't i don't see how i don't see how this ends i don't see how it's extended very far i, I mean i think it's going to end fairly soon as far as the economic lockdowns it's easy for go, this is like governor newsom in california to say oh well you just you know we're locked down until july or august uh but they the economic reality that is going to hit pretty soon. I mean, it, I don't. It's going to be long before then before they realize what they've done, and uh, especially has already had a lot of a brain and money drain. People are fleeing California as it was, and now if they're talking about, you know, locking the place down, and Arizona and Nevada aren't, people are, people are gone. I was just listening to Joe Rogan podcast and he was like, man, I might move to Texas. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired of this. And uh, so it, it's, uh, I think a lot of the, the states, particularly as other states are opening up, uh, are going to very quickly be competing to keep their population and their tax base in check. Well, I, and that's puzzling too. Why is, why is Phoenix? So, I mean, California has, I don't, as far as you know, has not really had a bad outbreak anywhere. I mean, I think they've sort of, brace for it but it's not really been they've had like eight that bad they've have it because they they've done the antibody tests and clearly people have had it there's some you know in the underground population but like arizona has been kind of wide open eight thousand deaths or something yeah for the most populous state in the country and and you look at new york too and i think a lot of the problems in new york is that they were sending recovering covid patients back to nursing facilities and then infecting all those people and so which is well it was really dumb and it was uh you know blood on their hands for the people who were forcing that because you had to know that was the wrong thing to do. Uh, and up until very recently, they were still doing that. And so that really would inflate your numbers too because you're throwing people who are sick you know, into the most vulnerable population and then they were getting sick and then of course, and these people don't get better, they die. 
I was talking to my colleagues and they were saying that uh, at least, you know, I don't know if this is unique to us or, but we're 85% of the people who were going in the ventilator at our hospitals were getting, were going home, which is very different than the story you often get. Like before I felt like the story was oh, once you get the ventilator, you know, you're not going home. You're pretty much, you're pretty much going to die. And that, I mean, that just hasn't been the case. And I don't know if that's, reflection of the patient population again this is an anecdotal one institution or um so i i again i just don't i don't know i i guess this is this is us pontificating because we just there's so much we still don't know about this and this is the problem and for us to try and make policy decisions or to try and provide a good advice to someone it's really hard because there's just we're and we're not going to know really the mm-hmm. true extent of this thing for another six months or so um I think it's probably there's some things you probably could know, like you're not going to probably have large gatherings. I can't imagine there are going to be you know people go attending large sporting events or large concerts for quite some time, and I don't know how much what that means. Except I don't think probably before the end of the year there are going to be any large events, um, unless we totally feel like this has gone away, which I don't think we're going to feel that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that goes. Uh, it makes the uh, Hayek's concept of the fatal conceit of government a little more poignant since it is, in fact, fatal. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Dr. Larson, it's been a joy, and uh, this will be uh, episode 23, com slash ep23. And if anybody has any um, uh, guests that they want to see on, uh, please uh, get them in contact. They can... Contact me on Twitter and Facebook. It's Honor and Ron Paul, something, Twitter, at sign. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, look it up. That's what Google's for. <laughs> I I used to have more problems with my Twitter. <laughs> Mine's the Paradox, at the Paradox Show, and it's P-R-A-D-O-C-S. And you can go find my website at theparadox.com. There you go. <laughs> He's, he's so much better at this. You'll, be, you'll get this down by the time you hit episode 80 or so. You know, you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, Eric. Nice to see you again. Yep. Thanks.